What do we do when the Bible seems just plain offensive? In particular, what about John's Gospel, which many people have seen as anti-Jewish? If Jesus was a Jew, why does John record him speaking negatively about the Jews? Would John be surprised by how his Gospel's been used over the years? And in a divided world, what hope can John's Gospel bring to us today? Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cramer Hall Durham, where we explore some of the big questions of life and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, and in today's show, I'll be talking to Dr. Andy Byers, New Testament scholar and director of the Free Church Track here at Cramer Hall. And our question is, is John's gospel anti-Jewish? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Andy, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you. It's great to be here. Andy, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into doing what you do now. Right. Well, I find myself here living in England, and I get to teach New Testament and ministry leadership at Cramer Hall. I... uh, Clearly, from my accent, it will be quickly discernible to your readers. I'm not from here. I grew up on a farm in the south, but in the south of the U.S., and uh, I've found that uh, growing up in that sort of context has really shaped my interest, and I ended up doing a pastoral ministry for a number of years in the States and moved over here in 2011 to do a doctorate in New Testament. Fantastic. Um, One of the things you've written on and researched is John's Gospel and the Jehanine work more generally. Um, what was it that drew you to that corner of the New Testament? And I guess, why is it important to you? I actually came to John's Gospel uh, with a number of questions back in 1997. So this was quite a while ago when I was wrestling. I was in a very, it was a very intense personal season for me. I just finished university, and I was so enamored by the sense of calling to Christian ministry that I I found it to be licensed to drop out of normal everyday ventures like, you know, finding a job, earning an income. (laughs) I thought God wanted me to live by faith and, oh yes, travel around the world. So uh, he was going to provide for me, and I was just going to stay at home and read the Bible and pray all day over stacks of maps. That is how I perceived uh, this new season of life. And uh, wrestling through all these impracticalities of, of trying to live without an income, but thinking God had called me to this, uh, and by the way, Philip, this is before gap years were a thing. Yeah, yeah. no, this <laughs> yeah. sounds. Yeah, no one was proud of this decision that I'd made in my family. Uh, but but I was reading John's Gospel, mm-hmm. and I came to John's Gospel uh, every day, wrestling over what was I doing? What am I? Am I really called to do this? And what struck me was Jesus and his relationship with his Father. And I thought, I want that. I want that with. God. I want to feel like I'm his child in that sort of intimate way. And as I kept reading, I, I had a lot of time on my hands, right? So Sounds as, like it. <laughs> yes. So as as I kept reading, I 
realize that in the latter part of the gospel, around midway, the same statements made in the gospel about Jesus and his relationship with the Father began to be said about the disciples and their relationship to Jesus and to the Father. That struck me as, uh, well, exciting that I could be enfolded into the same relationship with God that Jesus had with the Father. And those reflections, journaling, all that, I had no idea at the time, but it would have led to what became a published doctoral research project 20 years later. Wow, that's a journey that you've been on there for for kind of 20 years since you first had those uh, engagements with the text. I know one of the things you have been working on most recently has been addressing the question of anti-Semitism, both in and, and perhaps of John's Gospel. That's a very sharp question. Tell us how you got into that as a particular kind of question to engage with. Yes, well... As you have already detected, this gospel is precious to me. It's, it has been a profound part of my own faith development. It's shaped how I do ministry. It has shaped how I think. But as I began to do more serious research on John, I began to register the concerns raised by other scholars over potential anti-Jewish ideas in the text, a text so meaningful to me. And the, the temptation as a Christian reader of John is... I think, to react rather defensively, actually, and dismiss that anti-Judaism could ever be canonically justified in Christian scripture. But after years of reading John and preaching from John, even though I was picking up in the the secondary literature that anti-Judaism was a concern, I just could not not imagine writing a sermon, writing a book that was intentionally in any way anti-Jewish. Uh, both of my grandfathers were World War II veterans. I grew up horrified by uh, what I'd learned about the Third Reich, about Nazism. How could John's gospel be complicit in promoting anti-Jewish sentiment? So I began listening more carefully to those scholars who claim that John is indeed liable to the charge of anti-Jewishness. And the more I read, the more I became sensitized to some of these issues within the text. Mm. So as you became sensitized to those kind of arguments and began to kind of feel their weight... What was it that kind of made you think there is a point here? There's a, a really important set of arguments that are that are really worth listening to and are paying attention to. And I guess what's the way in which John has been used to promote anti-Jewishness or anti-Semitism in the history of church? Has that contributed to this kind of modern discussion and set of questions? Yes, the more I read, it became very clear that John's portrayal of a character group called the Jews, uh, the Greek is hoiudaioi, that that portrayal is overwhelmingly negative. Some instances of that designation are more neutral, some may be positive at times, but for the most part, it's true the fourth evangelist programmatically casts this character group as negative and, as you've hinted at, that, that portraiture has indeed been taken up at times throughout history and used, I would say wrongly, but still, that portraiture, the negative portraiture, has been used to authorize or justify appalling, invective, and at times even violence against Jews. Mm. And is there a point in history where that's been particularly more present? I'm thinking... 
we're obviously aware of that as a case within 1930s uh, in Germany, but it's not just restricted to that in history, is it? No, certainly not. There is a dark legacy that I think those of us who are part of uh, Western Christendom, uh, who uh, are, are emerging out of that long-standing tradition, we, we have a lot to look back over and apologize for, actually. Mm-hmm. I've been reading some early 2nd century texts, and uh, even in, in some early Christian works like uh, Epistle of Barnabas, for instance, there are moments where uh, now, as a 21st century uh, Westerner, I hear certain comments made, and I think, oh, wow, this this sounds ugly. Mm. Uh, so it, it has been going on, actually. This, this, this Christian tension with Judaism is something that has gone on for quite some time. And uh, in uh, the history of Western civilization, there are some real ugly chapters. Andy, you've painted the picture about why this is a, a very significant question that we need to engage with as, as readers of John's Gospel. Um, tell us about how you'd want to kind of push back against the strong assertion that John is an anti-Jewish text. Um, and, and perhaps to, to point that question a bit more, let me ask the question, would, would John have anticipated how his gospel would have been used as an anti-Jewish text? Right. As a Christian, I have a high view of Christ, high view of Scripture, and uh, I also work as a New Testament scholar, of course, so I have a very... Uh, strong vested interest in how ancient religious texts are read. So personally and professionally, I'm committed to responsible exegesis. If there is something ugly in these sacred texts of my faith, then I need to be honest about them, mm-hmm. uh, honest about it. Uh, but then again, if the reception of John has been irresponsible and unfaithful to his message, then I also want to be honest about that and willing to offer alternative readings. And I I think John would not have envisioned how his gospel would have been used uh, in its uh, more checkered and dark chapters of use. I I think it is just a dangerous thing, isn't it, to release a text into the world or a podcast, Philip, for that matter, right? (laughs) In my own writings, whether blog posts or articles or books, once they are published, there is a sense in which I, as the author, have lost some control, Mm. and I've seen this in a range of publications. I can't control how those publications are interpreted, read, or used. I can't interact with critics. I can thank supporters. I can offer clarifications here and there, but there's a sense in which the work takes a life of its own without me. And John wrote in a very specific time, in a very specific place, with a very specific range of concerns, and yet 1,900 years later, his gospel has shaped civilizations, actually, but without the availability of the author to clarify, to defend, to affirm. So for us to unreflectively universalize his language to every moment and every scenario without recognition of the author's own original context would be silly at best and dangerous at worst. So you're saying that we need fundamentally to understand this was a text of its time within its own historical location and paying attention to that will at least help us do the exegetical task responsibly. Yes, absolutely. Now, the text does speak to us today, but it must speak to us out of its own context, mm. I think. So, so let me ask the question, therefore, for John, 
who are the Jews <laughs> in his gospel, in his original context? It, it, it's a great question that sounds straightforward, and of course it is not. Uh, naturally, almost everyone in John's gospel is a Jew. That There are a handful of Gentiles, you have the Samaritans in mm. John 4, but for the most part, all of the characters are Jews, including Jesus himself. As the author of the Samaritan woman, as the author has the Samaritan woman point out to us in that conversation they have at the well. But the phrase, the Jews, hoi eudaioi, is used primarily to refer to the aggressive opponents of Jesus in this gospel. Now, some have argued that hoi eudaioi should be translated as the Jewish authorities. And this would work for almost every negative instance of hoi eudaioi, because most of the time it is indeed referring to those leaders of the Jewish religious establishment. Most of the time, but not all of the time. Others have argued that hoi eudaioi should be translated as the Judeans, okay? Uh, because most of the time the reference is to those Jews living within Judea and centered in Jerusalem. But again, this is not the case in every instance. John is clearly using the phrase to refer to those Jews within the narrative who oppose or disbelieve Jesus. Often, they're, most of the time, the religious leaders based in Jerusalem and part of the religious establishment. But it still leads to the question, why would an author write a narrative full of, char- of characters who are Jews and yet call some of them the Jews, as if they are on a, in a special category on their own? So that's a really important question, and we'll come back to it if we can in a moment. C- can I sharpen the question up even more, though, and point you to one of the bits in, in the Gospel where I think it's one of the most challenging texts, which is, is John eight forty four, where, um, and I'll just quote it, you are from your father the devil, and you choose to do your father's desires. Uh, and he's referring uh, to the Jews in that context. How have New Testament scholars made sense of that rhetoric, which is, you know, at the very uh, mm. simple level, extremely harsh? Yes. Well, there are, as you would guess, a range of interpretations. No one can deny that this language is, as you've put it, it is drastically harsh. Some scholars would urge us to take the exchange here at face value and acknowledge that Jesus is just simply being blatantly racist, demonizing an entire ethnic group. Others would argue that this sort of harsh language was actually order of the day. It was a common feature of ancient debate rhetoric, and it's just to be expected in any sort of ancient literature where there's a debate going on. Jesus himself is accused immediately after this of having a demon and being a Samaritan, So uh, this sort of intensity of rhetoric is shared on both sides a bit. It is also important to acknowledge that Jesus' statement is premised primarily, I would say, not so much on their Jewishness, but on their desire to kill him. And it is this inclination to murder that is to be ultimately linked to Satan. So it's less to do with who they were and more what their hearts were inclined towards. Yes, though there is no denying that at this moment, these are the Jews he is addressing, and they are talking about issues of paternity. Yeah. Can I, can I ask a, a question around uh, 
authorship and audience. And those are often very kind of critical and contested questions in New Testament scholarship. Yes. And I know the um, that question about who John was and who his audience was is, is not a settled question mm. <laughs> within within New Testament and Johannine literature. But I know one of the scenarios is that John was a Jewish writer addressing a primarily Jewish audience. I just want to say, is that a scenario you found you find um, uh, one that has historic plausibility? And if it is the case, does that mean the gospel is less susceptible to the label anti-Jewish? Mm. I, I think that, yes, the answer to that last question is that if this is indeed a Jewish writer with a Jewish audience, then it changes the uh, level to which we can accuse this text of being anti-Jewish. Many scholars point out that this rough exchange of words in John 8 is intramural. That is, it's within the walls. It's an inner family dispute uh, within Jewish life, within Jewish identity. And we all know that family feuds can be characteristically quite bitter. Well, I think this interpretation does more to explain this language than it does to justify it. But I do think it's true that there are certain critiques a group can make within its own walls, so to speak, that would be inappropriate or wrong if coming from another group from the outside. One example, I suppose, Philip, would be uh, it's different when a British person picks on a British person Mm. than if I, as an American, pick on a British person. Uh, Of course, it's free game if British people want to pick on Americans. That's apparently acceptable. But, uh, but, but not here, Andy. Oh, thank you. Very good. I'm glad to be on this podcast. Uh, In fact, if you read the prophets, you find harsh rhetoric all over the place. Mm. There are just certain critiques that Jeremiah can make that would surely be heard differently if the same words came from the mouth of a Babylonian prophet. Now, uh, this idea of John's Jewish milieu, his Jewish context, is. Uh, largely accepted within Johannine scholarship, New Testament scholarship. There is a scholar who has recently been writing uh, to offer an alternative reading. Adele Reinhartz is a Jewish biblical scholar whose work I very much respect. I've learned a, lo- learned a great deal from her. And she's written a recent book claiming that John's gospel is indeed anti-Jewish, arguing that this gospel is primarily written to Gentiles in the context of a Gentile mission. But after reading her arguments carefully, I think the case made by Lou Martin, Raymond Brown, and many other Johannine scholars, uh, that John is a Jewish writer, writing to a primarily Jewish audience, I think that's going to end up holding the day. Mm. So if it's the case that that consensus view about the Jewish context of John means that this is an intramural dialogue going on, that does have an effect on how we understand his references to the Jews. Therefore, the $64,000 question is, what is going on, therefore, in John's negative portrayal of the Jews? To answer the question, who are they for John? Mm. Yes, this question, which is one of the most contested in New Testament scholarship, who are the Jews? Why this negative portrayal? Uh, One scholar has put it this way, the question is absolutely irresolvable as to why Jewish characters in a Jewish text would negatively call other Jews the Jews. I think that John is doing something very intentional here that 
doesn't have anything to do with uh, trying to demonize a race or an ethnic group. Uh, now, some would take their hermeneutical starting point to address this question as John eight forty four, where Jesus accuses the Jews of having the devil as their father. Others would choose John four twenty two, which is much more positive, where Jesus, identified already as a Jew, declares to the Samaritan woman that salvation is from the Jews. So they would, some would take the more positive uh, discussion there in John four as the entry point. I think the best hermeneutical starting point for understanding John's portrayal of the Jews is the beginning of the gospel, the prologue, where the evangelist makes clear from the start that ethnicity and bloodline, they have nothing to do with soteriology, that is, uh, salvation. Those who receive Jesus in the prologue, the Lagos, those who believe in him, they become children of God. And that's, a, that's language that early Jews would very readily recognize. Those who receive Jesus are born, we are told, not out of blood, not out of the will of the flesh, not out of the will of a husband, but out of God. So believers are actually not required to belong to an ethnic group or a race to become God's children. This is a major Johannine claim. It's reinforced by Jesus when he tells Nicodemus, uh, a leader of the Jews, by the way, that he, Nicodemus, must be born from above to see the kingdom of God. So I think the reason this Jewish author is using the Jews as a designation is because he is attacking not an ethnic group, but the ethnicizing of salvation and belonging. The Jews are those who are relying on their own genetic heritage to qualify their membership within God's family. But John wants to present a divine origination of these children. He's writing, I think, to de-ethnicize soteriology to point to a new identity that's sourced from above. And this is, I suppose, Philip, we could call this an ecclesiology of a divine social identity. And because of this, there is no de-racializing of its members. Jews are the seed of Abraham, irregardless of their cosmic origin. Jesus makes that clear in John 8. But this ecclesiology of divine social identity makes participation universally open to all on new grounds of membership, and that is the belief in the Word who became Jewish flesh to save Romans, Greeks, Samaritans, Jews, and the world. Mm. That's fascinating, Andy. So, so this ecclesiology of divine social identity ran across the ethnic identities of the day 20 centuries later what what might that say for our understanding of of the gospel in today's world where does that press Mm. into do you think john's message if that's the case of how he uses the, the language that we looked at today that is such an important question because uh what you're asking is, uh, how should John's gospel be received? Mm. And we've discussed how we think John's gospel has been received in ways that has been unhelpful and dangerous even. I think the uh, responsible reception of this message is one in which uh, I, for instance, could not stand up as a Protestant white male and say, you must become a Protestant white male. You must become like me in order to become a Christian or to have salvation. Mm. I think the proper application of what John is doing with the Jews is that we cannot uh, 
allow any particular group uh, to have ownership of soteriology, of the salvation that God alone brings through Christ and by their spirit. So I think that would probably be actually the most responsible uh, understanding of what John is doing here, not the understanding of, oh, well, therefore it's okay to demonize the Jews or other ethnic groups. So it kind of, in, a, in, a, in an, perhaps an increasingly fractured world where uh, identity is often contested, but often of significant value, and we see national identities requiring mm. greater significance, this is a radical message of equality and welcome within the divine social identity that bears fresh attention. Yes, you have said that very well. Thank you. <laughs> the... Uh, the 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 one sticking point will be that at the heart of this for John is Jesus so that becomes the contestable point it's not your ethnicity uh it's it's not this ethnicity over another it's not this race over another it's entirely premised on whether or not uh we as human beings receive the word receive the logos receive Jesus as who John presents him to be so on that basis, uh, it does. It's, this gospel becomes contestable because it is not offering a pluralistic message that uh, can be embraced by anyone uh, without some devotion or commitment or faith. Uh, but what it does do is that it eliminates every other attempt at becoming a member of this particular religious identity uh, apart from faith in Jesus. Brilliant. Andy, some of our listeners will be people who are handling John's gospel as preachers. Um, many of us will be people who are reading John's gospel for ourselves. Um, we may, may not be dealing with these big kind of cultural questions that you and I have just been talking about. But what is it in what you've explored with us today that would be of relevance for somebody just opening John's gospel and looking at it for themselves? For me, what I have learned by having to really take seriously these claims that John is anti-Jewish, I've had to read the text from a different angle. I've had to read it with a different set of lenses, actually. Not without the lenses of faith, but with... Uh, I've had to read it with an ear sensitive to other voices that have found themselves on the uh, wrong end of John's poor reception, I am actually disappointed that I could have read John's gospel for so long and not pick up on the fact that some might call it anti-Jewish. So I think for me, it's important as a minister, as a preacher, uh, it's important for me to be able to read this text, not only sensitive to uh, the concerns of the ancient world context out of which it came, but also with an ear to what is going on in society and culture, how certain groups are drawing walls, redefining their own identity, how those walls may be broken down. And it becomes a gospel with a message for us very strongly, I think, today, because we are very, very keen on this notion of identity, wanting to protect identity, preserve identity. This offers us a new identity that may break down some of our identity walls. Thank you. Andy, 20 years ago, you were describing how you fell in love with John's gospel and read it. 20 years later, what does reading John's gospel look like for you and how's it changing you? 
obviously, when I read this gospel now, I'm reading it with uh, probably 40 John commentaries on my shelf. I have the Greek text out in front of me. I have probably 20 or so sermons maybe that I've preached from this text, several Bible studies I've done from this text. But I find true what John says about his gospel at the end. He speaks of the inexhaustibility of the subject matter. Many other books could have been written, right? There's no way to exhaust the riches of who Jesus is. And I find that uh, I've not solved all the mysteries. I'm just continually drowning in them, soaking them up, and enjoying the beautiful space it creates that challenges and also encourages and enlivens me. Andy, that's a great place at which to end. Thank you very much for appearing on Talking Theology. It's been great to be here. Thank you. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St. John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com.